Let's take our Bibles in. Let's go to the book of First Kings. First Kings chapter 10 in the Old Testament. And First Kings comes right before... All right, you are all awake. Yay! Right on. Good, 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 good. First Kings chapter 10. And if you need a Bible this morning, Dennis is, is just ready to, to share a copy of God's Word. If that would be a help to you, please grab the note page out of your bulletin, uh, if you wouldn't mind. I know that will be helpful along the way. And so, church family, though I have asked you to meet me in First Kings, that, of course, is not the book that we are studying at this time in, on our Sunday mornings together, our attention lies with the book of Ecclesiastes, as your little note page would indicate. But more on why we're in First Kings in just a second. Currently, though, we are looking over the shoulder of an ancient Hebrew ruler here on our Sunday mornings. We have been peeking over Solomon's shoulder and reading his diary, the book of Ecclesiastes, together. As we know, he is, he is a man who's on a desperate search, keeping a record of that search in this book called Ecclesiastes. He's looking into every corner of life under the sun in an effort to discover where the greatest satisfaction and fulfillment and pleasure and purpose and meaning in life is to be found. The conclusion that Solomon is going to come to, because we've read the end of his diary, is that life lived without God included in it is a life that is frustrating, a life that is empty and futile and ultimately meaningless. If we just live life under the sun on this horizontal plane only and never go above the sun in our life to include God, well, life is going to be empty of real meaning and fulfillment. That will be Solomon's ultimate conclusion. His under-the-sun search has taken him into many places already where we have been with him as he's been hoping to find a satisfying life in nature, through education, pleasure-seeking, pursuing wisdom, working really hard, pouring himself into the place of social justice and all of that. He's been to all of those places with us up to this point, and he has come up empty as that being the answer to a life that really is fulfilling. Today, we look with Solomon at another area of life that many, many people believe holds the secret to real happiness and fulfillment. And that arena is the arena of money. Money and the acquisition of material wealth. We'll be heading for Ecclesiastes momentarily, but before we do, 1 Kings chapter 10. Now, I've asked you to join me here so that we can meet a contemporary of Solomon's, a powerful ruler of a powerful kingdom. She is a queen. Her name is Sheba. You ever heard of the queen of Sheba? Yeah, sure you have. Well, she has heard about Solomon's unrivaled wisdom and his incredible wealth and his lavish lifestyle. That news has reached her uh, in her kingdom, which is far away from Israel and, and Solomon and his, his location. But she's intensely interested in meeting him, probably for diplomatic reasons, to create a, a, a liaison of some kind, a, an alliance, but as well for personal reasons, she wants to meet Solomon. 
The reports that she has been getting regarding the king of Israel and his wealth and his wisdom are so extravagant and so excessive that she seriously doubts that they can really be true reports. The tales border on the absurd. And so she wants to have a look for herself. We pick it up at verse 1 of chapter 10. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all of the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. We'll stop right there for just a second. In other words, she is blown away by Solomon and by the sheer opulence of his surroundings. She just shakes her head in amazement. I wasn't told the half of the way that it really is for you. She was stunned. And that was saying something when you stop and think about who she is. I mean, she is, she's no poor queen from a bankrupt kingdom. This is the queen of Sheba. And she, 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 she brings these gifts to Solomon, which are incredible. If you look at verse 10 in your Bible, then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Do you know how much gold she brought with her? To give to him four and a half tons of gold, 9,000 pounds of gold. By today's gold prices, that would equal $119 million. She brought that to him just as a gift. And that doesn't count all of the, the gems and the spices and everything else. But you say, well, that's, that's an enormous amount of money. But, but church family, that, does, that doesn't even compare with the annual salary that Solomon made. In one year, it says in another place here in our Bibles that, that he earned $760 million every single year. He made more in one year than all of us would put together make our entire lives If we took all that money, it would not come to that amount. That doesn't even include the gifts that he receives from foreign dignitaries like this. Solomon is rich, rich, rich. The reality of it is you and I can't even really comprehend how how really wealthy 
Solomon was. Now, the reason I started here in 1 Kings was not only to let you see a little bit more of the person of Solomon, but mostly it was so that we could establish now a context for Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through 20, which is where I invite you to, to go with me now. If you wouldn't mind, leave Kings, turn to the right, find the book of Ecclesiastes, because that's where we really want to hang out today. Surely a man as rich as this, as surrounded by wealth as he is, will be able to make a substantive contribution to any discussion on this subject of money. When Solomon talked money, people listened to him. He had a unique perspective on this topic. He has some knowledge of what he is about to talk about. He has credibility because he is, after all, we would say, Mr. Money. $760 million a year was his income. And money and wealth and riches and our attitude and our approach to money are what Solomon has on his mind in this next part of his diary, where your Bible is now open. Does life's meaning and satisfaction come to us through a big bank account? Does it come to us through lots of riches and and mega amounts of money and stuff? Does money equal happiness? You say no. Many think so. Maybe some people that are in your circle of friends and relationships think so. Chasing elusive dreams of wealth, the pot of gold at the proverbial end of the rainbow, believing that there is where the satisfying life is really to be found. And everything from within our culture tries to send that message. Would you agree with that? Our culture tries to tell us that that is the truth. From the TV commercials to the movie portrayals to the lottery, all of that, the message that we hear is that the best thing that can happen to you is to be rich. That's where the real meaning in life will be found. Well, Solomon would disagree with that. And if anyone should know, Solomon ought to know, right? Church family, what Solomon will point out in a variety of ways to us this morning in this section of 8 to 20 of chapter 5 is that there are some, some very serious hazards very serious perils that are hidden, buried like landmines on the road to riches and wealth. Love and money and the pursuit of material wealth as the goal, the end game to a satisfying life, that's going to be an empty pursuit. Solomon's going to tell us that. And so on your note page, Solomon serves up several sobering truths. And these are from one who is on the inside. Keep that in mind. He knows what what wealth and riches really offer, what they can really do, and what they can't do. And so in verses 5 to 20, he essentially says, let me share with you just a few of the perils of a materialistic, money-loving approach to life. He starts out this way in verses 8 and 9 by telling us that with an inordinate focus on money in your life comes an increased temptation to cast aside your character, to sell out your character. The temptation to sell your integrity, honesty, the sense of what is right, to to 
to, to treat others rightly rises. The temptation to, to, to sell all of that rises dramatically when wealth becomes the goal. Verse 8, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are higher yet, yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, that, those two verses just sound a little bit kind of strange, and you're saying, what, what is he saying there? Solomon points to the government in verse 8, essentially, with which he's intimately acquainted. He's the king, for crying out loud. And, and just by looking around, he sees how every level, at every level, officials try to, to play the power game and acquire position and make sure that they get what they want. They want, they want a little bit more than the guy who's next to them. The gain for the land, well, that's probably a reference to taxes. And the average citizen, the not wealthy, being squeezed by these, these government officials who are trying to acquire power and more and more wealth. A love of wealth corrupts character, Solomon observes. And, of course, he has an eye on all of that. The temptation to get more, to get ahead, to, to secure a higher place and be, the one of those, be one of those higher officials sometimes means that you sell your integrity, you sell your good name, you no longer care about people, you care about your bank account. It happened in Solomon's day, it happens in our day as well. The Apostle Paul had this to say to anyone who would, who would uh, make wealth their, their goal and their passion. Do you remember these words out of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10? But those who desire to be rich fall into what? Temptation. Into a snare. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of what? All kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Paul doesn't say that that money is evil or that money is bad and that it should be avoided. He says what? The love of money is the issue. Some make it their God, Paul observes. Wandering from what is most valuable. Faith in Jesus Christ, the eternal riches of, of a relationship found only in Him. But Solomon starts out by saying that an out-of-balance perspective on money can cost a person their character. Our character is the one thing that we possess that is beyond price, apart from, of course, Jesus. Don't sell that for anything. Your good name, your integrity, your trustworthy character. If you do, you'll never get it back. In fact, Solomon actually writes in Proverbs 22, verse 1, a good name is more desirable than what? Great riches. He should know, shouldn't he? He had it all. So a compromised character is possibly the first peril that a money lover faces, but it's hardly the last peril. Solomon says next in verse 10, he who loves money will what? 
not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now, vanity is the Hebrew word we've learned for meaningless. The second parallel he observes is that no amount of money is ever enough if you are in love with it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, you would agree with that, I would think. When he says it never satisfies, again, he ought to know. Even though he had more than all of our incomes put together, he would say it's never enough if that's what it's all about. If that's what you love, it'll never be enough. Again, the words, he who loves money, are super important, just like they were in 1 Timothy 6 a moment ago. Solomon's not attacking those who are wealthy. And the Bible never, ever puts down the wealthy person for being a wealthy person. It does, however, have much to say to the one who makes money God or gives it a place in their life where it becomes more important than your family or, or, your, or your friends or other people or your character, your testimony, or, or, or more important than Jesus. While he, while he, while he observes that that riches can buy tons of comfort and, and, and lots of silk and thick carpets and full tables and fine clothes and fast chariots and big lawns and, and on and on and on. While the money can do all of that, it cannot buy contentment ever. Randy Alcorn, do you know that name? Many of you know that name. Randy Alcorn in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, quotes some of the wealthiest Americans who've ever lived. Put them up on the screen for you. John D. Rockefeller, we know that name. One of the wealthiest people, maybe the wealthiest American ever. I have made many millions, but they have brought me no, what? No happiness. We could put contentment in there too. W.H. Vanderbilt, the care of $200 million, which in his day would have been over a billion, about a billion seven hundred million. He says the care of that amount of money is enough to kill anyone. There's no pleasure in it. John Jacob Astor, I am the most miserable man on earth. He was a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. Made his wealth in real estate. Henry Ford, we know that name. I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job than I am now as a multimillionaire. And Andrew Carnegie, millionaires seldom smile. <laughs> These are iconic rich dudes, man. I mean, the richest of the rich. None of them was f- fulfilled or contented with their wealth. When asked how much money is enough, Rockefeller famously said, just a little bit more than you have. Isn't that interesting? Perhaps unknowingly, each of these men is affirming the truth of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the whole Bible's truth. God has placed eternity in our hearts, hasn't he, brothers and sisters? That's what he's put in our hearts. God made us for himself. We're made for eternal joy, and we're made to find satisfaction in a relationship with God. Sin has torn that divine satisfaction from us, leaving us to try and find it somewhere in this world. Money represents the ability to buy this world. 
to have this world. But image bearers can't be satisfied by this world. And that's what we are, all of us. Millionaires seldom smile. Why? Well, because money love can never substitute for how God engineered us to be truly happy and contented. It's a second very real peril. It's, it's, you're not going to be satisfied. We're not going to be contented. It's never enough. There is a third hazard, a third peril, verses 11 and 12. Solomon says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. A third peril, Solomon tells us, is that a a misdirected focus on wealth will also result in many sleepless nights. We would just say worry. There'll be worry that comes with all that money. It'll bring in an abundance of anxiety, both in the form of persons and worries. Solomon doesn't tell us anything we haven't seen ourselves. Maybe we've even experienced the truth of, of these two verses. With verse 11, I think about a heavyweight boxer who punches his way out of the housing projects on the poor side of the tracks and, and he slugs and he pummels his way to become the, the champion of the world, right? He's got a scarred brow and a crooked nose and he's got this toothless grin, but he finds himself on the cover of Sports Illustrated and he is now famous and he is rich. He is a multimillionaire. Suddenly this man is a, is a household name and, and, and with all of that wealth and fame comes an entourage, right? People come out of the woodwork. In fact, before he knows it, he has people on his payroll that he has never met. And it goes on like this as long as he wins, right? As goods increase, so do those who eat them. Solomon would know about that. And with verse 12, Solomon puts, points out that, that the more money, the more people, and the more people, the more worries. And the more worries, the less what? Sleep. The simple workman who just works at his job and makes a fraction of the wealth of the wealthy man. He eats, he dresses, he lives simply, but how does he sleep, church? Soundly, doesn't he? He sleeps sound. Solomon says he sleeps sweetly. Sweet sleep. While the rich man's many ventures and the many people in his life have him up half the night with worry. Kind of like the conversation between two investment brokers who were discussing the decline of the stock market. One says to the other, does it bother you much that the the market has just crashed? Who, me? He replied, I sleep like a baby. Every two hours, I wake up and cry. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Jesus says to the one who loves and trusts him, Matthew 6, 31 and 32, so do not worry, do not worry. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? You don't need to worry about that, Jesus says, if you're trusting me. 
For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Food, clothing, shelter. Your Father knows this is what you need. He knows. He will supply what we need. We don't need to worry about that and lose a bunch of sleep. The perils of the money-driven, compromised character, no contentment, major anxiety. If you flip your little note page over, Solomon has more for us, saying in verses 13 and 14 that the security that many believe comes with lots of money is at best a what? It's an illusion. Verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen. Where, church? Under the sun, right? Riches were kept by their owners to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father now of a son. But he has nothing in his hand. He has nothing to give him. From where Solomon sits, riches are at best an insecure possession and easily lost. Maybe by a bad investment, a stock market crash, a natural disaster can bankrupt the wealthy person. The recent mudslide disaster, this just this last week in Montecito, we've all seen the pictures, haven't we? Multi-million dollar homes wiped completely off of their foundations by an impossible to hold back force in just an instant. Maybe a crooked investment scheme that someone got drawn into. Maybe a dishonest business partner who siphons off all of the money that you thought was there. All the monetary security that was believed to be impregnable and untouchable and secure. Suddenly everything's gone. Listen to these words, Proverbs 23, 4 and 5, also written by Solomon, by the way. Do not toil to acquire wealth, but be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. (laughs) Wow. Solomon says it is the nature of wealth to grow wings, right? Hey, you know, church family, did you know that that, that there's an eagle on the backside of the dollar bill with its wings what? Spread out, right? Right? Did you know that? That even on our money, the truth of of what we're talking about is right there as a reminder. And and you know what it's saying? This is this is if you trust in this, it will do what? It'll fly away. One of them will do that. A thousand of them can do that. A million of them can can do that, right? In an instant. And that is what Solomon is saying. One thing for sure, wealth can never buy you security because it can be gone just like that. Isn't it interesting that our founding fathers had the good sense to include something else on our bills and on our coins? What was that? In God we trust. Aren't you glad that's on there? That's a testament to our heritage. Oh, that it 
they don't take that away. Right? Well, Solomon goes on in verse 15 to remind us of another truth we all know well but need to hear afresh from time to time. And that is that, that death is the great leveler. It is the, it's the great equalizer. On the common ground of our deaths, all people meet as equals. Verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. What's the truth? Well, death renders every person ultimately empty-handed when it comes to material wealth or possession. For Solomon, the reality is that the grave of every rich person and every beggar is the place where they meet, right? No matter how tight the grip on the money of the money lover in his life, no matter how tight that grip was on his wealth, no matter how tenaciously he held on to his riches while he was alive, his hands relax, his fingers loosen at death, and all of his material goods fall into the possession of somebody else. And we all know about that. I can still easily call in my mind's eye the image of the birth of our two children. We have two, two children. They're now in their 30s. There beside Lisa, I watched both of them come into the world. And you know how they came into the world, both of them? Like this. This is exactly how they came in. Their, their fists clutched tight to them. Yeah? Church family, I have yet to officiate a funeral where the hands were not open and empty. That's the truth of it. That's why Solomon says in verses 16 and 17, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Again, talking about the person who's in love with money. If your first love... If your first love is, 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 is money, man, you feel like you're chasing the wind because you know, you just know eventually you're going to let it all go, no matter how much you have. It's a grievous evil to think of giving everything that you have to someone else. The perils of money love. Warnings from one who knows. Life under the sun where material wealth is your God, is life marked by many hazards, the threat of a compromised character, the loss of integrity, the endless pursuit of more because it's just never enough. The worry that comes with added responsibilities and a multitude of juggled concerns, the consistent fear that, that all of it's going to fly away just with one wrong move, a disaster, a false step, and the sadness of soul knowing all the while that you're not going to take even one penny with you at your death. Those are the perils. Solomon observes those. Now, if this is how our morning ended, it'd be a pretty bummer kind of a morning, wouldn't it? <laughs> but Solomon doesn't end on that note, I'm happy to report. He actually pokes his head above the sun for just a few moments at the end of chapter 5, and believe it or not, he tells us that there is a better way to do this money thing. It's verses 18 to 20. Behold, he says, what I have seen 
to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Our man Solomon here offers up three great pieces of advice on your note page. First of all, don't love money, but pursue contentment, right? Pursue contentment. Make that your passion. Find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. God is sovereign. He bestows as he determines. He will, we will do well if we can, can rest in the truth that he doesn't make mistakes. Whatever we have, that's what God has given us. That's our lot. Let's be content with what God, in his perfect wisdom, has provided for us. We accept our lot. Now, that doesn't mean we can't have goals and dreams that reach beyond our current situation or that we shouldn't save or we shouldn't work hard. But it does mean we can rest in what we have and not be tormented or driven by what we don't have, right? That's what Solomon would say. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 8. But godliness with what? contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world that's what Solomon told us earlier but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content that's our lot right be content with that Paul says we have we have more of this world's good than we came in with we have more right now than we're going to leave with right find enjoyment in what you have Find contentment there. God gave it to you. That feeds right into this second thought. Enjoy his gifts as his gifts to you. This is, this is kind of a slippery place because money and possessions can be so easily deified in our hearts. All of our earthly possessions come with a sign kind of hanging around their neck that says, Love me. Love me. Live for me. Right? But the key is to understand that money and the ability to make money are gifts. From who? From God. He gave you the gift of being able to earn and to make money, whether it's a little or whether it's a lot. We're not the owners of anything that we have, are we, church? We are stewards of only, stewards only of what God has given us. And the privilege is ours to, to give back to him, and to use well what he stewards us with. I've known people as you have known people with lots of money. And some of them want to make sure that you know that they have lots of money, right? They want you to know what they have and show you what they have. And they want to talk about what they have and, and wear what they have and drive what they have. And I've also known some very wealthy folks over my course of my life who have remained as down to earth as an old shoe money hasn't changed them at all what's the difference between the two well 
One sees what they have as a gift from God. And it keeps their feet on the ground. Others see it as something that they have accomplished and it's theirs to do what? Brag about, show off, and pursue. Yeah, we've all been there. We've all seen it. James 1.17, great reminder. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from where? From above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. How will we know, brothers and sisters, if, if we are seeing our material wealth as a gift from God? How will we know we're doing it well? Well, how generous are we with what we have? Do we hold on to it? Or are we okay with letting it go? How willingly do we share what we have with others? How do we respond when we take a loss? Is it devastating to us? Nobody likes losing money, but, but does, does my life become purposeless if I lose my resources? If these are gifts and I'm free to enjoy them, I'm free to, ins- to share them, I am free to, to give them away, I'm even free to lose them, aren't I? Yeah, because they've come from God. Lastly, let's find our joy in God spiritually, not materially. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is the true gift of God right here, aside from Jesus, to find the source of our joy internally and spiritually and not externally and materially, to find our meaning and our purpose and our fulfillment in a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus. Amen? That's where the real joy in life is. It's not in the stuff. It's not in the the bank account. Our culture preaches that happiness is found in material wealth and external circumstances. The new house, the new spouse, the new car, the new stock, the account growing in the bank, whatever it is, the new toy. This is where meaning and fulfillment is found. Our culture tells us that. But here's the truth. If we're discontented materially, Our contentment will never be realized by a big bonus. It'll never be realized by an unbelievable stock windfall. It'll never be realized by the rich uncle who leaves us a huge inheritance. If we're discontented before that, we're not going to be content after that, are we? We're just going to be rich people who are discontent. Solomon says, maybe the richest person who has ever lived, again, says, no way does money equal happiness. No way. It's the one who's not in love with money who has joy. Is that us? Jesus puts it this way. Matthew 6.33 But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, his way of living, his value system. And all these things, referring to our material needs, will be what? They'll be added to you. Food, shelter, clothing. God's going to take care of you. Seek first God's kingdom. The Apostle Paul put it like this. Philippians chapter 4. I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. 
I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who strengthens me. That's the secret, isn't it? I source my joy spiritually and internally through faith in Jesus. I rejoice that my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I rejoice that my sins are forgiven. I rejoice that my treasure is in heaven, that I am a blood-bought possession of God, and no one can snatch me out of, my, out of His hand. I rejoice in that. In Jesus alone is my joy, meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment and contentment. The world can never give that to me. But Jesus can give that to me. And the world can never take that away. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together, church. Well, thank you for a reminder this morning, Father, of where, where our values should be centered. And thank you for the truth of an Old Testament diary keeper today who really does understand and know about this thing called money and its, its snares and hazards. Thank you. You're kind to remind us in this materialistic world and, and country that we live in that is so driven by, by possessions and these earthly things. It's just good to be reminded. Thank you for doing that today. Thank you for Jesus in whom is our real joy. Thank you for letting us remember him today at the table. And, and may we live like people who are not held by, captive by this world and its, its, its material wealth and riches and pleasures. May we live for you, Lord Jesus, loving you and finding our fulfillment and purpose in you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. In fact, Heavenly Father, as a as a way of just letting you know that we trust you and we aren't trusting in our resources, we have the opportunity to give back to you now, to share with you what has come from you. It's yours. So thank you for sharing it with us. And, and as we release these gifts back to you as an expression of our love for you, it's also an expression of our trust in you. We could keep these resources to ourselves and hold on to them tightly, they could be gone tomorrow as they sprout wings. But, but if you take them, if we give them back to you, you will multiply them. And as you've already promised in your word, you will give us what we need. We do want to put you first. So thank you for letting us offer up these gifts to you now as an expression of our love, as a practical application of our time together this morning in your word. We say thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.